I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we're going to jump into strokes and stroke care in the EMS setting. Uh, Jason, we've we've talked about this a lot. Uh, we've had a lot of feedback from people saying that they just they really want to know more about stroke. They have a lot of questions about stroke interventions in the field and how to get them to the definitive care for stroke. Yeah, like uh, with anything else, uh, there's a fairly big disconnect just in medicine in general, especially from the field uh, to definitive care. So we sought to uh, find who could we talk to uh, that kind of understood both sides in the realm of stroke. So we have uh, a a, a gentleman in uh, Georgia who uh, is probably one of the foremost leading experts on uh, stroke system care. Uh, he is Dr. Rishi Gupta, and he uh, was gracious enough to sit down and talk to us. Absolutely. As Jason was introducing Dr. Gupta, he is the director of Neurocritical Care and Telestroke Network, as well as the director of Cerebrovascular and Endovascular Neurosurgery, at Wellstar Health System in Georgia. We could literally spend an entire podcast just reading his CV. Uh, it is uh, rather impressive from an academic standpoint. And just to give you a little bit of his background, he has uh, been in several different institutions as he's gone through his training. He was assistant professor of neurology at Mich- Michigan State University, uh, as well as did training at the Cleveland Clinic. He was the assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Vanderbilt, uh, and as well as associate professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology, uh, and the director of the multi-hospital acute stroke network and the vascular neurology fellowship program at Emory University. He was instrumental in starting uh, one of the premier stroke centers in the United States, the Marcus Stroke Center uh, at Grady, and then has most recently in the past few years uh, gone and done the same thing at Wellstar. It's absolutely incredible. <laughs> I mean, like you said, the, uh, the the CV is just phenomenal. Yeah. And as we as we as you read through this again, it would take you a long time to read through it. Uh, however, that is to me not where the quote-unquote genius of Dr. Kupta is. Uh, I have had the uh, distinct pleasure of hearing him speak several times, and you might think someone of that caliber would only speak at large conferences uh, and large uh, gatherings where he would get the most bang for his buck, but I'll tell you the uh, two times that I have heard Dr. Gupta speak. Uh, one most recently was just a few months ago, and he uh, literally got in the car by himself, and he drove about an hour and a half uh, to a rural area of Georgia to give a talk on uh, stroke management and stroke care to a group of about 10 EMS people. Uh, so he is definitely someone who practices what he preaches. He understands what it takes to treat stroke patients, and he understands what it takes to treat patients as a system. All right. Well, good deal. Well, let's dive right in. Let's go ahead and listen to the interview. 
So, Dr. Gupta, it is uh, an honor and a privilege to have you uh, on this podcast with us today. Would you just start by telling us a little bit about your background uh, and the work that you're doing currently? Absolutely. So I'm a, uh, I, I was passionate about um, going to medical school after uh, I, I went into engineering school first and I became a biomedical engineer and I had a passion for medicine and trying to integrate somehow engineering concepts into medicine. And as I went through training, um, one of the fields that stuck out to me was neurointerventional surgery because at the time in 2000, when I first started in this field, uh, it was amazing to watch cardiology go through these rapid evolutions for PCI and STEMI care. And the first patient I saw um, in my residency and training in New York came in with a right middle cerebral artery thrombus. And at that time, there was nothing we could do, and I watched him pass away. And it just mm. kind of opened my eyes to, we have to do better than this. And so um, I did my neurology residency at, in New York at Columbia University, and then went on to do a neurointerventional surgery fellowship um, at Cleveland Clinic in Pittsburgh, and then launched my career into stroke uh, stroke interventions and trying to help patients with large vessel occlusions. Wow. So tell us uh, about the first program, um, or tell us about uh, specifically the program at Grady and then currently where you are. Sure. So I moved, I moved to Grady Hospital in 2010, and it was based on a philanthropic grant from Bernie Marcus, who helped uh, found the Marcus Stroke Center. And at the time, the concept of Grady was to build a center to care for patients with large stroke disease or syndromes and to treat them with thrombectomy or clot extraction. So I spent three years there and worked with many hospitals in Atlanta to build a one, a referral center, but two, you know, intensive education to all the hospitals, to pre-hospital providers on how to care for patients with large strokes. Um, so that was my first introduction to the city of Atlanta, um, to the hospitals in Atlanta, and the pre-hospital providers in Atlanta. Where do you practice currently? So currently, I'm at Wellstar Health Systems at Kennestone Hospital, and I moved uh, here in 2013, so I've been here for seven years. And I've taken similar concepts from Grady and um, worked you know, in our local community here in North Georgia to integrate um, the Wellstar Health System into a platform of delivery of stroke care. Um, so we've taken it one step further in not only just large vessel occlusions, but all strokes, hemorrhagic, ischemic, and even smaller strokes. And the goal is really to come up with a systematic approach to caring for patients uh, with stroke and really providing better care, better outcomes, um, and really partner with what I, what I, I think my biggest thing I've learned throughout the 10 years I've been in Atlanta is how complex the system is and how much how many touch points a patient goes through and it's been my passion to integrate the levels of care for patients with stroke yeah that's interesting that you that you mentioned that and that's what I kind of ask you about uh, this system of care uh, you know in cardiology we've uh, we've done pretty well with developing systems of care trauma obviously has done a really good job with developing systems of care where did that kind of idea come from? with you for or for you to do that kind of 
personally to take that on? What Where does that come from with your understanding of making sure the outreach to EMS and the outside hospitals becomes a priority? It's an excellent question. So I think um, I want to start out with like how broken the system was within the hospital. And then I extrapolated that to what I assumed or kind of my guess was that pre-hospital providers did not have the education in this field. So it kind of goes back to my training again. I was a fellow in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic, which is obviously well known for its cardiac program. Um, and I was called to the emergency room to come see a stroke patient. And the nurse and the physician in the ER just left the patient. And as a fellow, I saw this patient with hemiplegia, couldn't move half their body. I had to wheel the patient myself to CAT scan, you know, get the CTA, do all the care. And there were no resources to help that patient. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a patient come in with STEMI, and there were two physicians, an ER physician, a cardiologist, three nurses, two EMS providers rushing the patient in the cath lab. And it just opened my eyes like how far behind stroke care was at multiple levels. So I mean, I think that was the first experience in 2004 when I first noticed kind of it came to my attention. Uh, when I moved to Atlanta, I think I was, I think what was kind of nice and kind of a breath of fresh air was I was blown away by the level of support of helicopter crews, ambulance providers, you know, all the pre-hospital providers were just sort of thirsting for knowledge for stroke. And it just, I think it just took a shape of its own. I mean, I, I saw what happened in other cities and I was just blown away by how much enthusiasm and passion there was to care for stroke victims. Um, and it just became apparent to me, it was a lack of knowledge and a lack of education, and we needed to do a better job of that. And and Dr. Gupta, I'd, I'd like to say that that kind of, that's reciprocated by you and your passion for teaching EMS. Um, if you wouldn't mind, would you talk about, you know, when did you start teaching a ASLS courses? You know, when did you actually start the outreach and, you know, it's there's a unique bond that EMS providers have with you. And, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about EMS physician champions. You are clearly one of those. So why was that? Absolutely. Um, when did you start teaching? EMS? Yeah. So 2011 is when I first started at Grady. Um, you know, we worked very closely with Grady EMS in the early days. Um, and then that branched out to, various providers in the city of Atlanta, then outside of Atlanta to rural areas in south and north north of the city. Um, I think, um, you know, what you touch upon is, is an important thing. And I think there are two things that I think drive me, I'd say are kind of my, they just make me upset as a physician. And it's to watch when EMS brings a patient to the emergency room and kind of the moaning and groaning from the clinical team in the hospital about when someone comes in. I think like every opportunity, if something gets missed or there's a potential for improvement, becomes a teaching opportunity rather than a, you know, a scolding opportunity. And I think some of this is understanding that our levels of knowledge vary across the spectrum. And to bring us closer together in alignment, we all need to work together hand in hand. And so, I mean, I think what struck me was there was receptiveness. There was enthusiasm. And I think that that was something I wasn't used to. So I think it just, from 2011 onwards, I made it a passion of mine to, to do this because just every provider I came across was just incredibly grateful. But more than that, I saw the aha moment 
when they saw one patient with a big stroke and they identified it, got them to the hospital and just this real like adrenaline rush in their eyes that they feel like they made a big difference for that patient. Um, so I, I think for me, it was just kind of, that was my feet. My reward mechanism was to see that. Um, ASLS started when I moved to Kennestone in 2013. Uh, Jennifer Jones has been instrumental in helping me set that up. And I think with the stroke team here, Jennifer Jones being our EMS outreach coordinator, we've been very fortunate to have that opportunity to teach that course. So let's, uh, if we can, let's jump into uh, some of the clinical aspects of this. Just, so just like, uh, you know, with uh, outreach to the community, uh, outreach to the medical community uh, as well, when it comes to things like cardiac or trauma, the symptoms are often very objective, very severe, which brings us to a you know a heightened sense of awareness. Unfortunately, with stroke, because some of the symptoms can be either a little bit subtle or they don't really cause the same amount of pain that other other um, uh, situations have, like uh, trauma, cardiac, uh, what have you. Explain a little bit to us just the scope of the problem. I, I don't know that people necessarily understand uh, other than anecdotally within their own uh, service or the calls that they've run. You know, they, they hear of a, a, few, a few strokes here and there. So tell us a little bit about how many strokes happen a year and then what is actually happening uh, detrimentally to the patient when they're having a stroke. Uh, that's an outstanding question. So my, my understanding is there are about 1.1 million STEMIs a year in the United States, and there are about 800,000 strokes a year in the United States. So they're they're very similar in numbers, uh, maybe a little less for stroke. Um, in the southeast, in the stroke belt, where Atlanta is part of that and Georgia is part of that, um, we have a higher rate of stroke than other states in the United States. So South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, uh, Mississippi are a little bit more, um, we have a higher prevalence of the disease. So that's that's first and foremost. I think the unique thing about stroke, which I think should resonate with all of us as providers, pre-hospital and hospital providers, is that the difference is a trauma patient and a STEMI patient may be hemodynamically unstable. Uh, there may be something visible that you know alarms the provider that they're crashing. Where with a stroke patient, you know, it's kind of what I would call the silent killer. And what I mean by that is they're hemodynamically stable. You know, their blood pressure is fine, their heart rate's fine, they're breathing fine, but their brain is dying uh, before your eyes. And the hard part for us is that we we sometimes are trained to treat blood pressure, airway, you know, ABCs, right? That's how EMS is trained. And I think, you know, N or neurologic dysfunction or brain dysfunction, maybe the B should be brain as as part of the ABCs because it's a it's a silent killer and you know I think what what should alarm people is when someone does have a deficit speech motor vision we have to understand every minute the brain is dying that is an unrecoverable function that that patient will be forever disabled with and mm -hmm. I think we have to kind of change our perception of that so so yeah you bring up a very interesting point when you talk about the assessment piece um, as an instructor, you know, frequently I have I have so many questions coming from students about stroke, because like you said, it's a very passionate subject. Is there an assessment that you prefer? You know, we have we have race, we have MEND, VAN, LAMS, Cincinnati, NIH. Is there one 
to you that sticks out as the most reliable for an EMS provider, you know, a pre-hospital setting? Yeah. So I think the one for the pre-hospital scale um, that's been validated probably the best is the race score. Um, and I, I do think we should break this down into two things, right? So there's one is detection of stroke. Um, so that would be your um, your FAST exam or your Cincinnati pre-hospital scale. I think those are good validated scales for detection of stroke, yes or no. But then to take it to the next level is, is it a big stroke or a small stroke? Then the race scale is the most validated scale in that in the second tier. Um, there are definitely other scores like VAN, like you mentioned, fa uh, FAST ED. Um, you know, there's a Cincinnati large vessel scale now. So there are other things. But I think one thing I would encourage is picking one scale and ensuring all providers are speaking the same language. With those with those assessments, what, are there any uh, nuances within those assessments that are important versus, you know, um, right versus left, um, large vessel occlusion, as you said, versus a smaller stroke? Anything there that as we kind of move towards the ultimate question here of destination decision, um, whether it's in within Cincinnati or race, what what nuances should we be looking for in those cases? Yeah, that's a really outstanding question. So I think it's important to understand the gold standard for scales today is the NIH stroke scale. And the reason I don't think it's a good scale in the pre-hospital setting is that it's it's um, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of training. And I think that um, it it really cannot be replicated without seeing hundreds of patients and doing the scale over and over again. But the race scale, what it's done is taken the, the, the points on the NIH stroke scale with the highest components and shrunk the scale down to make it easier to provide in the pre-hospital setting so that more providers can provide it. So um, the, the most important things are, are motor function and speech. I think they, they get the highest ratings on the race scale as well as gaze deviation. So the take-home points are if someone has a severe motor deficit, cannot move their arm or leg, cannot speak, and or has a gaze deviation, those are high-risk features for, for a big stroke. Along with that assessment, what are some of the important things in the history? I mean, I know, you know we're obviously going to, everyone thinks about last known well or, or something like that. What are in our history gathering Apart from the objective assessments, what do we need to be looking for that helps paint the whole picture on the treatment uh, process this patient's going to get? Yeah. So I think the other thing to know is what blood thinners the patient is on. So if they're on, um, you know, one of these novel oral anticoagulants such as Xarelto, Eliquis, uh, Pradaxa, or Coumadin, I think that that history is very important. Um, you know, I think the one thing that gets lost in all of this is the pre-existing function of the patient prior to the stroke. And I think that's important because if somebody is very, very disabled and then has a stroke, it does alter our treatment decisions in the hospital. And I think later, I think when we talk about destination, it probably will alter that also. So things like severe dementia, you know, bed bound because um, they can't walk due to severe hip fractures in the past, um, those kinds of things are important historical uh, data points for providers. Let's move more towards. Okay, so we've done we've done the assessment. We recognize that the patient is having a stroke. 
And then whether or not the the race assessment gives us uh, an idea whether it's a large vessel occlusion or not. Let's talk about the different types of destinations. So we go through the the different types as far as uh, primary versus comprehensive, comprehensive versus primary with thrombolysis. All that stuff I think can get lost in um, the terminology. Help us understand what those different places have to offer. Yeah. So the primary stroke center. Um essentially is the the designation given to stroke centers that can provide 24-7 acute stroke care um, for intravenous delivery of thrombolytics. They can provide rehab services. They can provide stroke neurology coverage, either via telemedicine or in person. Um, and they're, they're meant to be destinations. The way I would think of it is um, destinations where intravenous drugs can be managed at that facility. A comprehensive stroke center is one step up where PCI or thrombectomy, like mechanical thrombectomy, can be offered, as well as open surgical procedures for hemorrhagic diseases or ischemic diseases if warranted. So um, the comprehensive strokes designation is a much more rigorous and stringent um, designation because it, it allows for endovascular and open vascular surgical procedures to be performed. Um, so that's the difference between the two. And on that note, I do have a question. This question frequently comes up with paramedic students and recent graduates, and it's a it's a topic of debate for even seasoned providers. Ground versus air transport for stroke mm. patients. And I know that there's no black and white answer, yeah. but um, could, could you give some guidance on, you know, maybe some parameters for a, a new medic? Hey, you know what? I think I need to fly this patient versus trying to ground pound them, yeah. you know, to a closer facility. And I agree with you. That's a very complicated question because of resources um, in a local community. You know, you in a metropolitan or a rural area. So I, I do think there's a lot of nuances to this. But very generally, um, the way I would think about it is um, the, the the faster you can get a patient with the stroke to the emergency room, the better in general. And I think that should be principle one. Um, the 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 nuances of this are. I would say if somebody is within the time window for either intravenous TPA or for mechanical thrombectomy or, you know, clinically deemed to be a candidate for thrombectomy, we'd want them to be more urgently taken to the emergency room. And what I've said is if someone, if it's going to take more than 30 minutes by ground and you believe by air, you can get the patient there less than 30 minutes, I, I would, I would defer to air over ground for those specific cases. Um, if you think, by ground, it can be done within 30 minutes. I think it's reasonable to go by ground because I know there's a lot of setup time and other things to get air, air transit. Um, lastly, I would say, I think this is an area that we probably should standardize more um, and work with our trauma colleagues on this because they've done a very good job of sort of deciding who's air versus ground as well as the cardiac uh, team. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement here um, what I could tell you at Kennestone, we encourage more of the rural transfers to come by air because the distance is usually, you know, more than 45, 50 miles. And so those patients typically are flown in. Um, and the ones within sort of a 30 mile radius are typically grounded into to Kennestone. So take us through, and, and I know it's, this is probably an impossible question to answer specifically and could probably uh, discussion that could go on for for days, but 
tell us who who are the people, the patients that may be slam dunks for comprehensive. You know, we we have a lot of uh, even just throughout the entire country, comprehensive centers are just not everywhere. Probably they they need to be. You know, this is where cardiology was uh, probably just ten or fifteen years ago that the, there were a lot of cath labs but no PCI centers, and so. Uh, now that PCI centers have popped up everywhere, the transport decisions for EMS are a little bit easier because so many people do PCI. We're now in this realm uh, with stroke care that there's a lot of primaries, but there's not a lot of comprehensive. Help help EMS kind of walk through the decision-making on primary versus comprehensive, whether it's a, a distance thing, a time thing, um, who should get TPA first, drip and ship, uh, or who should go directly to a comprehensive? You like to ask really tough questions. <laughs> so, um, so it's a it's a good question, and I think it's a practical question that we have to to really nail down. So I think so I think there's two categories of patients. Category one is the patient who is within the IV TPA time window, so they're within 4.5 hours of last known normal. That population in general, the data is. Um, should receive intravenous TPA as fast as possible um, before consideration for thrombectomy. So that population, what I would say is if you're within, if, if the difference in time between the primary stroke center and the comprehensive stroke center, if you're going to lose more than 30 minutes to bypass a primary stroke center, then it does not make sense to go to the CSC. You should stop at the PSC and allow them to transfer the patient if appropriate. Um, what I what the what the asterisk to this is we're talking very specifically about a patient with a large vessel occlusion syndrome. So mm-hmm. it's not all comers with TPA. So it's only the group where you know we had discussed the race score or one of these um, secondary scores um, such as Vans or Fast ED. So I think in your algorithm um, at EMS, if you pick a secondary scale and it tests positive for high probability of large vessel occlusion. If your transit time is less than 30 minutes between PSC and CSC, it probably makes sense to bypass the PSC and go to the CSC. And the reason for that, and I'll, you know, we have data on this now, that the average door-to-needle time for TP at the comprehensive stroke center is on the magnitude of 25 minutes. At the primary stroke center, it's on the magnitude of 45 to 50 minutes. So you're, you're saving time in TPA delivery for that delay in transfer. So I, I think that's, if I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, take us through a little bit, uh, then we have a patient who's, uh, you know, two or three hours out, they are a candidate for TPA. Which types of patients would be ineligible to receive TPA? Yeah, so I think if they're on Coumadin, um, one of these NOACs, like uh, the Eliquis or Alteropernaxa, um, they would not qualify for TPA. If they've had recent surgery, um, you know, within six weeks, if they've had any kind of surgical procedure, they would not qualify. If they've had a recent stroke within six weeks, they would not qualify. Um, if they've had a history of a hemorrhage, um, an intracranial hemorrhage, then they would also not qualify. So those are checklist questions that can be um, asked at the time of, you know, at the scene. Are they still eligible for thrombectomy? They are. That's yeah. That so the mechanical thrombectomy approach. Uh, they they are not precluded from proceeding with a thrombectomy. Okay. So we uh, we have a patient that's going to be coming going to a comprehensive um, center. 
Take us through that. They arrive, uh, say, at your facility. What are the steps that go through? And then kind of walk us through the different devices or different types of thrombectomy that you have available. Sure. I think one thing that's important um, prior to arrival, I think many hospitals are doing like a pre-notification system. And I think that's an important point for EMS to understand that the pre-notification really does help us on our end because once you've alerted us and given us the clinical symptoms, we we have a triage system in the hospital of high probability or low probability of a clot based on the symptoms that have been uh, transmitted to us. So I think precision of that information is very helpful. Uh, once the patient arrives, you know they're taken emergently for imaging, which consists of a non-contrast head CT and a CT angiogram. And the purpose of those two tests is to, one, rule out a bleed, and two, to look for a blood clot in, in an artery. Um, if we were pre-alerted that this is a you know high suspicion, and what I mean by that, gaze deviation, aphasia, hemiplegia, if one of those kind of three buzzwords come across the pager, the endovascular team is well aware of it and is kind of in action mode based on the imaging. And so if the imaging shows a clot, then immediately the patient's taken right to the cath lab for the thrombectomy. Um, At that point, the operator has choices of how to remove the clot. Um, There are two basic principles. One is a stent retriever, and there are three stent retrievers on the market in the United States. That's Trevo, Solitaire, and Embotrap. And then there's aspiration catheters that can be used to, quote-unquote, suck out the clot or aspirate the clot. So those are choices. Unfortunately, there is not a standardization today of which technique is best, but operators, based on their experience, use one of these techniques. What would cause a patient to be excluded um, once they arrive uh, from being a candidate for thrombectomy? So the, the the biggest, I think the biggest thing we look at is the physiology of the brain. So on the non-contrast CT or the, we have advanced imaging with CT, if there looks like there's already a large injury on the CAT scan and that reperfusion will not restore function, we won't, we will not take those patients. Um, if someone has other comorbidities such as severe dementia, um, or is very disabled at baseline, um, we will not take those patients for thrombectomy. The data doesn't support that today. So those are the big ones. So speaking uh, along the lines of the data, can you walk us through kind of the evolution that has come from how far out we can now treat strokes? I mean, you mentioned the four and a half hours for TPA, but there's been an evolution for, you know, six hours, 12 hours and and beyond. Take us through some of that data and uh, kind of the evolution of that and where we are today. Yeah. So, I think as of 2009, um, there were several papers that came out showing that time is a component of stroke, but there are patients who can be treated beyond the traditional time windows because their brain is still alive. And what that means is that um, each individual patient has something called collaterals. And so when they develop an occlusion of an artery, there are blood vessels that can sustain the tissue from dying for a short period of time. So in some patients, that may only be 30 minutes. In some patients, that could be 36, 48 hours. So there's an individual variability that exists. So we do these imaging 
tests in the hospital uh, to assess tissue viability. And based on that, we can make a decision to treat patients at later time points. So the evolution of this was in the early days and, you know, early 2000s to 2010, it was felt that thrombectomy can only go out to six hours and no further. Um, since that, there have been several papers that have come out that have shown you can go out to 24 hours and uh, perform a thrombectomy at 20, 22, 24 hours, and still that patient can have restored function after doing that procedure. And I think that's important to understand that, um, you know, if you have a patient in the field who may not qualify for IVTPA, um, but has a large deficit, again, there's no advantage to going to the primary stroke center for that patient because they're not going to be able to do uh, the thrombectomy procedure, and we're just delaying care for something that could be offered. So I think the easier thing is when a patient does not qualify for IVTPA, but tests positive on one of these LVO scales, they really should be emergently transferred irregardless of time because we could we can treat patients up to 24 hours out. Do you do you see a couple things uh uh evolving here with EMS? Uh number one, especially with the rural areas all throughout the country, um and and likely the world, um, do you see any opportunity for any kind of telemedicine? with EMS uh, to be able to take the patient from the scene and get them to the right destination with all of the nuances, you know, we talk about cardiac and stuff, you know, cardiac's, you know, pretty, pretty easy. You see ST elevation on an EKG, you know where you're going. Do you see an opportunity um, for some sort of uh, consultation while still on the scene to help determine the destination? Yes. So I think um, you bring up a very good point, and that is we want to be very careful um, not to overly transfer people or patients to the stroke comprehensive stroke centers because they are limited resources today for caring for, for such patients. I think you correctly pointed out there are a limited number of CSCs in, in communities and having their bed availability is crucial. So patients in rural communities, I think having either video cameras on ambulances, um, you know, there's new telehealth platforms that are, that are cost effective. And uh, we've piloted a few of these in the past, and I think they can be very effective. One of the challenges is they, the signal dropout, depending on where you are um, in your territory and region. There is There are issues that the networks can drop signals. But if we can kind of get around that, I think linking EMS in rural communities to the comprehensive stroke center they typically take their patients to um, can assist in you know, whether the patient should leave their community or not. And what I mean by that is if we're able to beam in, examine the patient with the EMS providers, say, yes, that's a real, that that's concerning, they can activate the helicopter or, or you know, if they have to take the truck out of their community. So, but that, that decision we shouldn't take lightly because it is a, you know, I think it's an important and challenging decision if a, if an ambulance leaves the community and that could be the only ambulance for that for that county in some of these rural communities. So we need to be very, very careful as to how we approach that. But I do believe telehealth is a great solution for this. I do want to say there's one thing in the future which I do think will solve this. And, you know, cardiology, you guys can do an EKG and with relative accuracy that can tell you if it's a STEMI or not. I do believe technology will come to fruition in the near future where you can put a little probe um, on the skull 
and it would say yes or no, that's a clot. So either through transcranial Dopplers, um, you know, some sort of sonography, or there's some new um, wave technology people are looking at, Th those things can really help us perhaps make be more consistent in these decisions. Do you think uh, do you think that there's it's warranted to have TPA in the pre-hospital setting? Are there enough strokes out there? Is it safe enough? Is it cost effective? So you know, I I think there is a there's a group of physicians who are looking at you know I, I think you have heard of the mobile stroke unit where there's an ambulance with a CAT scanner on it, and what they've shown is that if you can get a CAT scan in the field, deliver TPA in the field. The outcomes are better when you do it that way. I think the problem in most communities is that they, there may be one or two of these units in a city, um, but that cannot provide for the mass, the, sort of the larger number of patients it needs to, to, to treat. So um, unfortunately, the, the big problem is we need a CAT scan be able to be able to deliver TPA. And if, you're, if you don't have that image, we cannot do it safely because of the risk of that patient might have a hemorrhage and not an ischemic event. And so I do caution. I mean, I think your point is valid. Um, if we're able to get technology in the field that proves the patient is not bleeding, then yes, absolutely. I think this could be a futuristic thing where thrombolytics could be infused in the field. On the same note of technology, um, until that day comes when we do have that, capability of diagnosing in the field. Are there any, well, first off, let me ask, what is your opinion on the use of apps? Uh, there are certain apps such as FastED and some of the other ones. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on the use of an app versus relying on the paramedics, uh, just clinical assessment? And if you do like the apps, are, are there any in particular that you prefer? So I, I think it, it, it really depends. I, you know, I'm not a big app person personally, but I mean, I know some, um, some people really find apps to be very helpful. Um, and you know, it's a reminder. I, I honestly think like these decision trees are not that complex. And what I mean by that, um, apps, the, the apps I've seen today on the market, they serve two purposes. One, you know, one of these scales like race, fast ED, one of these scales are on the apps and the provider just goes through it and just clicks data points to see if it's a large vessel occlusion based on the score. I'm, I'm not sure you really need an app to do that. I think that can be trained. I mean, FAST and MEND and Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Scale have been taught for decades, and there are no apps, and people are doing a great job with that. Um, the second function of an app was, you know, the destination based on where you are. Um, so where you are in the county, in the community, how far you are from a CSC. So, I, I again, I mean, I, I, would, I would encourage each individual EMS department to partner with a PSC and a CSC and ensure they know where they're taking their patients up front. Um, I think building those relationships um, and having direct communication with those health systems is a more efficient and effective way because I think that partnership grows and the efficiencies grow. I think the, my concern about these apps is that um, you're, I, I, you know, it, I'm not saying today that's happening, but you can imagine the future, it may direct traffic to hospitals affiliated with those apps. And I think we have to be very careful because some of the um, um, conflicts of interest and stuff are not known for everything that's being published and produced. So some of these are being done for economic gain. 
And I just worry about that a lot. So it's, it makes more sense to have direct communication. I mean, I don't think it's that complicated to know in your community how far your stroke hospital is for PSC and how far the CSC is in your region. And I think just, you know, if education is required with those two, two facilities, they can provide it. Um, but I think it's good to build regional stroke networks that are uh, directly communicative, that educate. And lastly, I would say EMS providers should be coming to the hospitals to learn, you know, at the stroke systems of care meetings, have that education with those providers about, you know, opportunities to get better. So in in the few minutes that we have uh, remaining, can you share just some, maybe there's some stories off the top of your head on just some really successful outcomes that you've had within the system that you've created? Sure. So I think um, there, there are two that stand out to me. There One was, um, there was a patient, it was about two and a half years ago, who was playing tennis one summer, collapsed on the court. Um, the EMS team picked him up from the tennis court and sent a beautiful pre-notification of gaze preference and hemiplegia. This was at 8.55 at night. They sent that message to our command center. Command center sent it out. Um, honestly, based on that information, the patient was within one hour of symptom onset. Um, I activated the stroke team to come in for a thrombectomy while the TPA decision was being made. Um, that patient on arrival, I think they arrived within 12 or 13 minutes from the field, um, had a CAT scan within minutes, and was from the hospital arrival to the table in thrombectomy was on the table within 35 minutes. And, and the only reason that happened was because there was a very proactive EMS provider who really took the time to send the right message to, to our command center. And it was just a, it made perfect sense that this patient was having a large vessel occlusion clinically. Um, that patient is at home, fully functioning three years later and is, you know, has two children in college um, and is back to normal and is, you know, high functioning. So, I mean, to me, that wasn't because of what I did or what we did. I think that was because there was a great recognition in the field, great communication, and it allowed a downward stream team to provide rapid care. Um, the second story is, is, is more interesting because um, I was probably about two weeks after one of these courses where Jennifer and I were uh, in one of the counties, and this county was about, uh, it's, it's in North Georgia. It was about 60 miles from Kennestone. And there was someone in their 20s who had a motor vehicle accident. And this EMS provider noted the patient had a gaze preference and was not talking. And, you know, obviously everyone was more concerned about the trauma, but this provider stood up and said, you know, I think this patient's having a stroke and I think was having to advocate for it. Um, and there was a little bit of pushback because it was a trauma, but they convinced them to fly the patient here. And sure enough, there was a carotid dissection and a blood clot. And that young young patient, um, you know, graduated college and is back back to normal function. So I think, you know, we are not able to provide the care we provide without that partnership. Um, and I truly believe outcomes can be enhanced if we all work together. Um, and when opportunities exist to get better, we call each other out on it, not to be critical, but to, to make our, 
are, you know, if the hospital's failing, I think EMS should tell the hospital you guys are making, you know, these are some opportunities we see and vice versa. And I think the more direct line of communication we have, um, I feel like we can do a better job in providing care for our patients. Yeah, well said, well said. So as we wrap this up, as you go out and you speak with EMS and hospitals, uh, give us the one or two of the main take-home points that you want people to leave with. Yeah, I think advocate for your patient. You know, understand time and efficiency are important. If there's ever questions, like if, if you had a perplexing case, please do not hesitate to reach out to Jennifer Jones or myself, and we'll be happy to you know, provide you feedback, education, whatever we can do to help you understand. And, and I think the most important thing is each individual uh, community, EMS team, really should look for partnerships with their local primary stroke center and CSE and develop a standardized protocol for which scale they're going to use. Um, you know, like these discussions we had about helicopter versus ground, like what are the indications for both of those, um, and standardize those protocols and have a pre-notification protocol with the hospital you're delivering the patient to. Um, I will tell you, and I think you guys can vouch for this, I think when patients come back to the community afterwards, I have had several of them go back to their EMS team and thank them for the outstanding recognition and delivery of care. And I think those moments are touching, and we should all remember these are members of our community that we're treating. And I think that, and especially in smaller communities, you know, it's like a family. And I think that you many people know each other, and we should really think of that as we're serving our communities. Incredibly well said. So true. Well, Dr. Gupta, I can't thank you enough for your time. I mean, this, yeah. is, this has been a, a true pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.